Hey, folks. Hey, everybody. How we doing tonight? We're good. Hello, hello. Uh, my name is Reed, and I am uh, currently serving as a pastor of adult discipleship over at Clemson Presbyterian Church just down the road. Um, I've spent the last a uh, little bit more than a decade as a campus minister with RUF, both on this campus and a campus in Alabama. And I have missed being on campus. I know we're not on campus now, but I love being with y'all. I know there's a lot of friendly faces in the room, uh, a lot of students that I really love, and uh, a lot of folks that I'm getting to know. And so I'm so glad to be with y'all tonight. Um, I'm a local guy, and I love living in Clemson. We have lived here for seven years, and it's been a great community for our family. I'm married. My wife is Kelly. We've been married 19 years. We have two daughters who are both in middle school, so appreciate your thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. All right, so that's us. That's our our family. Uh, I'm really glad to be here and look at this passage with you tonight. We're going to look at uh, sort of a long section from the Old Testament in Exodus chapters 3 and 4. So you can turn in your Bibles if you have those. We'll put it on the screen in a minute. But let me ask you this question before we get into this text. When was the last time you hit a wall? Like not like physically punched a wall, like Andy Bernard kind of punching a wall, but when was the last time you just hit a wall? You know what I mean? Where you just felt like, I don't know that I can do this. Like you felt overwhelmed. Maybe you even cried a little. Maybe you even cried a lot. Maybe it was like 30 minutes ago. <laughs> You're like, I hit a wall right now. I'm hitting a wall in, in today. Um, where you just feel overwhelmed. You know, you know those feelings. I experience hitting a wall a lot in my life, maybe more than you would expect as, as a pastor. I reach those points a lot in ministry where I just feel like, God, I don't think I can do this. Um, sometimes I even think, uh, you've got the wrong guy for the job. Like, um, I feel that way in family as a dad. Did I mention I have two middle school girls? Anybody catch that? As a, as a father, as a husband, I feel it in life. We just hit those points, right? So what do, you, what do you do when you feel like you can't do it? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. How do you move forward in those moments? The message of today would just say, like, those are the moments where you just really got to dig down. Like, dig in, believe in yourself, right? Find that extra oomph. Don't let anybody hold you back. You can do anything you set your heart to, that sort of thing. Or... In like the Christian-y world, we spiritualize it and we'll say things like, well, God would never give you anything more than you can handle, which is like a terrible lie. <laughs> because it seems to me in Scripture and in my own life that God seems to regularly put his people in positions where they can't do it. And sometimes they don't know how to move forward. And sometimes he seems to want to do that so that we can understand something of his grace in those moments. And I think that's what we get in this passage. We're going to come across this story of this man of faith, Moses, who hits a wall. 
This isn't a famous passage in the Old Testament where God is entering into this conversation with Moses from the burning bush, and he's calling him into this great ministry where he's calling him to lead Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. And he's gonna, it's telling him, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh of Egypt, the king of Egypt, and I'm going to tell you, you're going to tell him to let my people go. And Moses hits a wall, and he's like, no, <laughs> you've got the wrong guy for the job. So we're going to dig into this passage. We're going to kind of eavesdrop on this conversation, basically. And we're going, to, we're going to look at two sides of it. We're going to spend a few minutes talking about the objections that Moses takes with God, the things that he names of the reasons he can't do this. And then we're going to consider God's responses to those objections, okay? Is that easy enough? All right. Y'all hang with me. We're going to read a, a bit. I believe in you. I believe in your ability as Clemson University students, an education hallmark, bulwark of this great state. You can hang with some long reading from the Bible, so let's do it. Starting in Exodus chapter 3, I'm going to read a little bit of chapter 3 and then into chapter 4. Starting in verse 7, here we go. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey into the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you, he's talking to Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now we're coming to chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and called it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Okay, skip down to verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. And at the very end of the chapter, verse 29 says, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord and they will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need your help. Always we need your help. We are needy people. And you know that well, and sometimes we know that well, and sometimes we pretend that it is not true. Lord, help us to not pretend tonight. Help us to see our need, our dependency upon you, our weakness, our frailty. It's a hard prayer. It's a hard prayer on a Thursday night in a room this size where we have a lot of things to be excited about, but also we all know our hearts, and Lord, we pray that we would know what it is to look to you with our need tonight. I pray, Lord, as I speak, as we consider this text, Lord, I am needy. Um, I'm fearful. I'm insecure. Lord, I need your help, and we need more of Jesus. So we pray that we would get more of Jesus through this study tonight. We ask in your name for your glory. Amen. All right, like I said, I want to take these four objections from Moses, just pretty briefly, and we're going to unpack some of these objections on the front end. Now, these are, they all start with the letter I, so you can remember it. And I'm pretty sure I stole these labels from a commentary, but I can't remember who, so You can credit me with all of these. That's fine with me, but I got it from somebody else. But I I really like these labels, and they're helpful. So the first one came in 311 when God first called Moses, and he kind of checks himself. You heard him say, who am I, in verse 11? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? In other words, Moses says, I am inadequate for this task. That's our first I. I'm inadequate for such a task. Now, this may sound like humility, but I, I tend to think it's fear camouflage is humility. You know the difference? Where it's kind of like feigning hu- humility, like who am I? But actually, it's a, it's a lack of faith. He's taking issue with God. He's not just doubting himself, he's doubting God's ability to use him. Now Moses, at this point in the Exodus story, it's helpful to note that he's a fugitive farmer on the run from the previous Pharaoh of Egypt. And so the idea of going back to Egypt back to where he's running from already and facing this generational foe is kind of a big ask of God. So Moses feels inadequate. That's the first one. The second objection comes in chapter 4 and verse 1 where he moves his focus from Pharaoh to his fellow Israelites. And he's like, Behold, they will not believe me or listen to me, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Moses is thinking about his audience now. And he knows what they know about him. He knows that they know his history. And he's saying, I will be ineffective. Because again, he escaped earlier because he had committed a crime and ran from it. And so he knows that they know 
his history, and so he feels that he would be ineffective. You can almost hear in these words, I think, a deep sense of shame. You know what I mean by that? Like, it's just this idea that he, he feels that they will not believe me. They're going to call me a liar because they know who I really am. You ever have that experience where you're like, if they find out, like, I can play the game to a certain degree. I can use the right lingo. I can hang with the right people. But if they really find me out, if they know who I really am, that's called shame. One of my favorite authors, a guy named Chuck DeGroat, he, he talks about how we all carry behind us an invisible bag of shame everywhere we go. And we know what's in the bag. And sometimes we're so worried that other people are going to know what's in the bag. And sometimes as we're carrying around this invisible bag of shame behind us, it sounds so loud to us, right? And it feels like it's just so huge and everyone obviously sees these things that I feel ashamed of in my own life. Sometimes it feels so heavy. It's the things that we know about ourselves. It's our stories, our failures, our secrets. It's all in the bag. I've also heard shame defined as like the never enough in your life where you feel like you just will never measure up to whatever standard that is. I'm never going to be smart enough. I'll never be attractive enough. I'll never be cool enough. I'll never have enough money, enough success. I'll never be um, experienced enough or good enough. This is Moses. And he feels this deep sense of shame as he thinks about his own story. He's carrying around this invisible bag, and they'll never listen to me. That's what he says. And we'll talk about God's response to that in a moment, but look at now the third objection. It comes in verse 4, verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. So now it's not about those people out there. Now that my problem is me, Moses is saying I'm incompetent to do this job. Clearly Moses feels some sense of insecurity about his actual speech. Like the text is saying I'm not a man of words. Maybe he stutters or he has a stammer or something and he feels like he can't eloquently communicate his message. And it's helpful to know that Moses also knew that the king of Egypt would have all these professional speakers in his court, these professional orators who were skilled speakers. And so he's like, I'll never be able to measure up against these other guys. This is what they do for a living. So Moses is super insecure. He's, he, I like how he says, like, I didn't used to speak good, and now I still don't speak good, even since we've been talking. <laughs> it's like he's having a real-time reckoning with his own sense of insecurity. He says, I'm incompetent. Okay, the last one is this. Verse 413, where he just sort of throws in the towel, and he's like, oh, my Lord, could you just send someone else? There has to be someone else who's more qualified than me. Surely there are more gifted and experienced leaders out there. I am not the guy. I'm a problem. Basically, Moses is quoting T. Swift here. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. He's... This is Moses, early, early lyrics. I'm pretty sure that's what she based her song on. Um, I want to pause the story here for a minute. Because I'm wondering if you can identify with any of this so far. I hope you can, because I, I do. And I want to know that I'm not alone in this. Can you identify with Moses in here? Because Maybe you've been put in a situation where you just immediately feel like, I'm not qualified for this. 
Maybe it's in ministry. Maybe it's even an FCA or some other ministry or church group that you're involved in where you just feel like, I've been asked to do something I feel very totally unqualified to do. Or maybe it's not in ministry. Maybe it's literally like your class load right now or some of your involvement on campus or something going on in your family life. Something's been asked of you. Or maybe there's something going on in a relationship where you just feel like, I don't, I don't know how to move forward in this. In fact, I think I'm the problem. Maybe you feel inadequate because you don't have the right background where you have real fear or doubt, even though it's wrapped in humility, camo. Or you feel ineffective because you're so full of regret You feel something clanging around in that bag that one day these people are going to find out and I'll never be effective. And it's keeping you from taking a step forward in faith. Or maybe you feel incompetent because you see something in yourself that's just too limiting. The way you talk or the way you carry yourself or something in your appearance or your history. Or maybe you feel inferior because you compare yourself to everyone around you and you're just like, there's definitely better people for this job. You don't have what they have. By the way, I think that last one, like we can all agree on that one, especially on this campus. I think there's a lot of comparison culture in Clemson, isn't there? Everyone is put together. Everyone is prettier and smarter and more athletic. Like everyone has their lives together and I'm the only one over here struggling. We, we feel that on campus on a regular basis maybe. I can honestly say I have felt really all four of these at different points in recent history and even in my new job. So I mentioned that I I just changed jobs three months ago. So I've been on the campus for 11 years uh, and now I'm in this role as a pastor of adult discipleship. What does that mean? Like disciple the adults, all of them? How do you measure that job? Like, make sure they're all the, like, which adults? All the adults are discipled? What does that mean? Made mature in Christ? Okay. That's a big ask. I know that's not really the job, but that's how I interpret it, right? And I, and I can get really overwhelmed by what does that mean for me and my own work? Or I do the comparison thing a lot, and it's gross, because I compare myself to other pastors or other ministry leaders, and I'm like, well, they're much better communicators. They're better leaders, better disciples, evangelizers. I don't even know how to say the word evangelizer. Um, I don't even think it's a word. I compare myself to, you know, people online. I can, the comparison game just runs over me or I can get caught in my own shame cycle and think about my own story and failures and what if they, what if they really knew me, feel overwhelmed or doubt God's call and I can pretend that it's humility, but often it's really a lack of faith. Can you find somewhere that you identify with Moses? If so, I want you to listen in on God's responses to these objections. Because most likely they're not what you expect. Uh, In some ways, let me set it up this way. In some ways it reminds me of like that improv comedy rule of yes and. You know what I'm talking about? All right, I don't know anything about improv. Everything I know about improv, I've learned from. I listen to way too many comedy podcasts. That's one way. 
The other is uh, my daughter takes theater uh, classes and, and participates in plays, so she's done some improv classes. And the other way is Michael Scott. Like everything I know about improv, again, is going to be from The Office, and he's just not good at yes and. You know, yes and is that rule where it's like one partner on stage in the scenario presents a scenario, and you don't take away from it. You come into it, and you add to it, right? You don't take away from what's there, but you add to it. Yes, this thing, and I'm going to add to it. Now, listen to God's responses. Every single one of these responses to Moses' objections, he's yes-ending him, (laughs) Which is actually super encouraging, but it's also not what you would expect God to say. Because Moses lodges these objections against God. All of the reasons why he's not the man for the job, and God doesn't say, you know what, Mo? You're right, man. You're right. My bad. That's on me. You're cool. It's fine. No worries. That's my bad. No, he doesn't. What does he say? He says, yes, and here's what I mean. Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I'm inadequate. God responds, yes, you are inadequate, and I will be with you. In fact, this is where God reveals his covenant name to Moses. Yahweh, which we see in the English here, means I am who I am. In other words, God is saying, you are inadequate, Moses. You are who you are. And I am who I am. And I will be with you. And in the second one, Moses says, but they won't listen to me. I am ineffective. God says, yeah, that's true. You actually are ineffective. But watch how effective I am. And then he does these three miracles. We only read one of them, but he does these three miracles to show his power to Moses. The staff and his hand was leprous and this water thing that happens. And these are really just previews of what he's about to do through the plagues in the Exodus story after this. But God is saying, I will accomplish what I intend to accomplish. I am effective. The third one, Moses says, But my speech, I am incompetent. And this is my favorite response where God says, yes. And who made your mouth? Isn't that so like tender of God? Like Moses names the thing that he is most insecure about. And God says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I made that mouth of yours where you seem to be struggling, where you feel that you're weak. He graciously promises, I will be with your mouth. And the last one, Moses said, could you just send someone else? I'm inferior. And God says, yes, you are inferior. But you aren't going alone. I'll be with you and I'll send Aaron with you. In other words, Moses feels like he just can't do what God is asking him to do. And here's what I want you to hear. He's right. He's right. I don't know if that's what you expected here, but Moses is right. He can't do it. But God wants to show Moses that his power is made perfect in Moses' weakness. I want to acknowledge how totally counterintuitive this is. 
God's response is so against sort of the world in which we live. You know, the world in which we live is like if you feel inadequate, ineffective, incompetent, or inferior, there are ways to deal with it. Entire systems that you can build into your life to make up for any deficiencies that you feel, right? We can download subscriptions to whatever services that we desire. We can put many apps on our phones. We can watch billions of hours of YouTube videos to make up for any deficiencies that I feel of something that I can't do. Or we just sort of build in subtle systems into our lives to make up for not, where we don't want to feel weak. Um, We can stay super busy so that we don't have to think about it. We can jump from one unhealthy relationship to another unhealthy relationship just so that we'll feel like someone cares about me and I don't have to pause to think about how I'm really doing. Or we load ourselves up, we load our schedules, or we spend our time mindlessly scrolling or streaming or playing or drinking or sleeping or whatever it may be. Maybe it's over-exercising or a ton of sugar or shopping or whatever. Or sometimes we just sort of give up. We build in strategies, in other words, to not feel our weaknesses. And our strategies never seem to work. They leave us more alone, more insecure, more afraid. This is where I need to tell you about the newest fifth member of our family. I mentioned we have two middle school girls, and now we have this dog. This is new for us. All right, let me tell you about this dog. This is Goose. Goose is a seven-month-old golden retriever who is uh, really sweet and also really dumb and so scared of everything. I've never met a more afraid dog in my life, and he's driving me crazy, y'all. This dog is, like, supposed to be our guard dog, but he's a guard dog who's afraid of, like, grocery bags (laughs) and falling leaves and basically anything that moves. So two days ago, I'm going to tell you a story about what happened two days ago. Um, now, dis- a disclaimer. My opinion, preachers should never tell a story in which they are the hero. And they should certainly never tell a story in which they play the God part of the story I'm about to do both of those things, just as a disclaimer. I'm the hero of this story. Goose is the villain. (laughs) Two days ago, uh, I was at work at my office, and our office staff was having like a little pumpkin carving contest outside. So my wife brought our daughters over to join, and she brought Goose, and Goose was on a leash, and everyone was so happy to see Goose there for all of like 33 seconds. And something happened. Goose got spooked because he's the scaredest dog you've ever seen in your life. And he was able to get the leash out of the person's hand that was holding, and he took off faster than any dog I've ever seen run straight to the woods. Now, we're like at our church is off of 93, and it's kind of like where 93 meets uh, 123. Lots of cars. Goose is not smart, and we are very scared now. He gets completely out of our sight within a second. 
Search party goes out. Like all of the Clemson Press staff team is now walking the neighborhoods looking for Goose and calling for him. So much time goes by. It felt like three hours. It was about about 30 minutes at least. He's gone though. Our girls are crying out of their mind over in the parking lot, searching for Goose, searching for Goose. Cars are like, we're calling neighbors in the neighborhood. (laughs) Like it's, we're that family. I regret that we're that family now, but we are. And anyway, the story ends by, uh, we found him. Thankfully, he did not make it to the highways. I, I actually came across him in the woods. So I was walking through all this woods and all this clearing, and I couldn't see him. I'm calling him, and then I find him in this thicket. There he is. That's the picture so I could shame him later. With, <laughs> Do you see his face, though? Like, I didn't know dogs have faces until the, this moment. And he's caught. He's caught in the thicket. He's bleeding everywhere. I didn't know if he could walk. He's super scared of me at this point. He's in full flight and fight mode. And so I'm having to get down and calm him down. And he, he wants nothing to do with me. And so, of course, I get down and get in the, this is where I'm the God character, right? Um, get down there with him in the mess. And again, here's the point. He had a strategy, to deal with his fears, right? His strategy was to run and run fast and run far. And where did his strategy get him? It's not too different than some of the stuff we're running off to. That's the simple point. We have these coping mechanisms to deal with our insecurities and our our fears and all of these um, inadequacies that we feel. And we run and we run and we run. And where does it lead us? Into some thickets where we just get more stuck. And we need a rescuer. I was the rescuer. Everybody catch that in this story. But here, let's go back to our story. How does all this apply to us? I want you to see in this text that God is not telling Moses to look inside to find answers. He's literally telling him, look outside to find answers. As one pastor put it, to encourage Moses, God points Moses away from Moses and toward himself. C.S. Lewis famously said that humility, true humility, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Moses needs true humility, not think less of himself, that I'm so terrified and I'm so terrible and I'm so unqualified, but actually to think of himself less and more of God and his character. God doesn't tell Moses who Moses is. He tells Moses who he is and that he is I am, and that he is enough. And what's true for Moses is true for us. And so to encourage you, when you feel insecure or afraid or full of shame, God doesn't tell you to find more of yourself, but actually to find more of him. As we said at the beginning, it seems that God regularly seems to put his people in a position where they see their weaknesses so that they might see more of his grace. So let me ask you again, when was the last time you hit a wall where you met your limits, where you experienced those intense feelings of inadequacy or ineffectiveness, incompetence, inferiority, or whatever it may be? Could it be that God was not just exposing your limitation, but he's offering you an invitation 
See, the reality is the gospel of Jesus Christ presupposes that we are limited. The gospel of Jesus Christ presupposes that we are indeed weak, that we are actually insufficient in and of ourselves and that we need help from the outside in. So God's invitation to Moses in this passage is, Moses, you're right, you can't deliver my people. But I can, and I will, and I'm going to actually use you to do what I want to do in their lives. He is going to use Moses to accomplish his purposes. He's saying, put your faith in me. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Israel needed a rescuer from their slavery in Egypt, and God is raising up one in Moses. They needed a mediator to stand in and to stand up for them, to bring them up out of their bondage, and God is raising up Moses for such a task. Now, we are not in slavery to an evil king, but the New Testament goes on to take this story and to apply it to our slavery to sin. That we too are a people who are in great need of rescuing. That we need help from the outside in. Someone who's going to go after us in the woods in our hiding and in our shame and in our stuckness and to bring us out. And of course, the ultimate rescuer, the ultimate mediator that Scripture points us to is Jesus Christ. Jesus is raised up as our ultimate Moses who sees us in our need, who comes into our rescue, who saves us from ourselves and ultimately from the worst that this world has to offer and to offer us real life in him. And just as Moses needed to look outside of himself to find help, we have to look outside of ourselves to see that Jesus is ultimately God's yes and for us. Yes, you are weak and you are needy. And God says, I have sent my son to meet your needs. Yes, you are sinful and you need forgiveness. And I have sent my son so that you may have life in him. Yes, you are struggling to hide what's in the bag. But guess what? I know what's in the bag. God says, and I have come to cover your shame through my son dying on the cross. Jesus has never been, nor will he be, inadequate, ineffective, incompetent, or inferior. Instead, his grace is sufficient. His sacrifice is effective. He is omnicompetent, and his name is above superior to every other name. This is why the Apostle Paul can write in Philippians where he says, Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is God's ultimate yes and He's our true and better Moses. And so next time you hit a wall, consider it not a limitation, but a real invitation. That God is inviting you in to experience something more of his grace for you. Like that you would actually know more of his power to meet you in 
your weakness, to experience the power of the Holy Spirit, to know and to believe that, yes, you really do have a great need. You have a great need for a Savior. And you have a great Savior for your need. I'm going to share this last story that I wasn't intending to share, but I think it's appropriate. Um, a number of years ago, this was very related to me working through this, this text. And there was a season of my life in ministry where uh, God sort of took me through the ringer, where I was experiencing stuff that I had never experienced before in the way of insecurity and fear and, and shame. And I was regularly like met with basically like panic attack like stuff. And it was often in these kind of settings where like my job was to go and speak <laughs> and I couldn't speak. Like I would be actually frozen. And I was incredibly embarrassed several times. And there was one, one particular day where this happened and the Lord was taking me through a journey of like, there's things I needed to learn during the season. I, I began counseling again in that season. There were a lot of helpful things that God used, but I was speaking on a missions conference. Like I was raising money. I've raised money for many, many years. And I, um, I was speaking on a missions conference that supported my ministry. And they were asking me to give an update about our ministry. And I experienced this like, overwhelming feeling of fear and weakness and I froze and I couldn't get through it and I kind of just like stumbled off the stage and like pray for me and I moved on it was horrible like I hated it but there was this preacher this guest preacher who was there for this missions conference and I knew who he was like I had known of this guy before and he's he's very much like a Robin Williams and Goodwill hunting kind of guy like he's the counselor that you want to hug you and tell you it's not your fault. He was that kind of guy. And I asked him, hey, did you see what just happened? And he was like, yes, I sure did. And I said, can I talk to you about that? And I met with him that afternoon for about two hours. And he talked me through this text, not the Exodus, but like the, where, where Paul is wrestling with his weakness. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And one thing he said to me, and I just want to leave you with this quote because it changed me. Something about that conversation fundamentally changed the way that I understood my relationship with Jesus and the way that literally my life and ministry has been affected since. Because he said to me this, he said, what you're experiencing is called weakness. <laughs> and he said, the feel of faith is not strength. The feel of faith is dependent weakness. I don't know if that's helpful for you, but that has been deeply life-giving for me. The fill of faith is not strength. You don't have to be put together. You don't have to have the right answers and pray the right prayers and perform. But what you have to know is you have a need and you have a savior for your need. That's actually what the world would call weakness, but it's dependent weakness. And so as we close tonight, there is going to be the opportunity to pray with the prayer and encouragement team. They would welcome that. They would love to pray for you. Wherever you feel insufficient, inadequate, insecure, whatever it may be, they would love to be able to pray with you in those particular areas. Or maybe it's, it's coming to the Lord directly with your need. Maybe even for the first time, would you look to him in faith, in your weakness, for his strength? Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that you see fit to lead us 
straight to yourself when we don't know where to go. When we hit the wall, I pray that we would come to see you through it, on the other side of it, that you would be our guide, that you would be our comfort, that you would be our answer, that you would be providing just grace after grace to meet us in our need. And I, I pray for these students, Lord. I, I know what it's like to just feel like you just got to keep going and keep going and keep going. You don't have time to stop and consider where do I need help? Lord, help them to stop and to confess, maybe even for the first time, their weakness. Would you work, Lord, in each life and, and in my life, lead us over and over again to the cross. The evidence of our weakness is that our Savior died for our sins. And the evidence of our strength is that he lives, resurrected from the dead so that we can be with you. And I pray that you would remind us of those truths over and over again, even tonight. I pray that you would use your people. I pray that you would use small groups. I pray that you would use your church in this community for these students. I pray that you would use campus ministry. You would speak through your word. Remind us of these truths for your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.